the population of London grew at a rapid rate in the 19th century, and the city soon ran out of places to bury its dead. The answer was the creation of huge suburban cemeteries around the edge of the capital. Their grand monuments and more modest headstones connect us directly to the past, giving us compelling clues to fascinating lives. One local historian, Mike Gilfoyle, has made it his mission to uncover some of the extraordinary tales that lie behind the epitaphs at the Brockley and Ladywell Cemetery in South East London. More than 150,000 people are thought to have been buried in this leafy, peaceful resting place. Some famous in their day, some infamous, many deserving recognition once again. These are the stories behind the London epitaphs. How many gravestones have you seen with the word comedian on them? I've only ever come across one, and if you want to see it, then you can find it near the Cross of Sacrifice, not far from the main Ladywell gates of the cemetery. The inscription also reveals that the memorial was paid for by the friends of the deceased, one J.B. Buxton, suggesting not only that his family needed some financial help with his burial costs, but also that he was much loved. John Baldwin Buxton was indeed very much loved. He was an immensely popular figure in British Victorian theatre, not only as a comedian, but as an actor, writer and producer. For years, he dominated the West End, and when he went on tour, the theatres were packed with his fans. He was a prolific writer of dramas of every type, producing no fewer than 150 plays in his working lifetime. Although his fame may have faded over time, there is no question that he was both a successful artiste as well as an important impresario, and his associations with some of the giants of Victorian literature, particularly Charles Dickens, suggest a man who enjoyed some influence in the world of theatre for a large part of the 19th century. J.B. Buxton was born in London in 1802. The family intention was that he should join the Navy but a brief naval stint as a boy put him off the idea and he went back to school before becoming articled in a solicitor's office. Once again, the fit was not right and in the time on a tradition, the 19-year-old Buxton ran away to join a travelling theatre company. A touring company at that time would have been more like a band of strolling players than an organised business venture and Buxton found himself performing in barns and receiving a salary that was somewhere beneath a farm labourer's. Life was tough and barely worth it financially. He struggled on until he managed to step up a rung by working for a friend who ran a number of Kentish theatres. But it was a meeting with a theatrical superstar in 1824 that finally turned his fortunes around. Buckstone became acquainted with Edmund Keane, one of the most admired and yet most divisive figures of the Victorian theatre. Keane was a Shakespearean actor of international fame who could enthrall an audience and whose colourful private life made him a controversial and even notorious figure. However, his patronage was not to be sniffed at and it was believed that Buxton was encouraged and helped by Keane at this crucial moment of his career. He got his first London engagement at the Surrey Theatre and it was an instant success and jobs started rolling in. At the time, Buxton's speciality was known as law comedy not a derogatory term, but a branch of entertainment that could be traced back to ancient Greece. Highly physical, often bawdy and farcical, low comedy can be found in Shakespeare as well as the early cinema. Buxton worked his comic mannerisms into many of his stage roles and developed a style that was peculiar to him. 
He was described as having remarkable physical attributes, which included a voice that brought on hilarity. His appearance was naturally comical. A photograph of him taken in later life shows a man with very expressive eyes and rather unruly hair. Buxton was performing in a golden era of theatrical entertainment and there was a bottomless appetite for new work and so he supplied his own writing in all genres for the stage from melodrama to farce. It was while performing in one of his own plays, the very popular Luke the Labourer at the Adelphi, that he's introduced to Sir Walter Scott. Yet again, access to a great name provided an extraordinary professional stimulus and his writing went into overdrive. As his career progressed, Buxton became associated with one theatre above all others, the Haymarket. It was an association that would last for more than 20 years and at its height make the theatre one of the most popular in the West End, particularly for comedy. He is believed to introduce, among other innovations, the 2pm matinee performance. Although his writing output declined in these later years, he brought into the Haymarket fold some of the best dramatists of the day, including W.S. Gilbert. Letters from Charles Dickens' archives also show that Buxton enjoyed a genuinely warm friendship with the great writer. Buxton went to America briefly, but returned to the Haymarket, where he re-established himself. Occasional forays to provincial theatres proved that he was as popular outside London as he was in the West End. This newspaper report from 1872 about his appearance in Manchester paints a picture of a man with a considerable following. The evening of the 11th was devoted to the benefit of the universal favourite, Mr J.B. Buxton, and as if to thank him for that grand histrionic treat during the stay of his powerful and talented company, and to assure him of their high appreciation of his wonderful abilities, Manchester playgoers came with a rush and crowded the building from floor to ceiling. Things started fraying in the late 1870s as the ageing Buxton lost his grip, not only on putting on performances, but in running the hair market. In 1878, he came before the bankruptcy court, admitting to a debt of nearly £6,000. A long and illustrious theatrical association was over. His friends rallied to his aid, describing his situation as serious and distressing and making public pleas for subscriptions to support him and his family. The considerable size of that family could not have made things easy for him during this time of near destitution. He is thought to have had at least 17 children from two marriages. His first wife, Anna Maria Honeyman, with whom he had five children, died in 1844. For years thereafter, he was closely linked to the married actress Fanny Copeland Fitzwilliam. When her husband died, they planned their marriage only for her to die of cholera a month before the wedding. Buxton went on to marry Fanny's cousin Isabella, with whom he had 12 children. Three young Buxtons, two sons and a daughter, followed their father onto the stage. J.B. Buxton died aged 77 at his home, Bell Green Lodge in Lower Sydenham. Barely a month after one of his sons, Sydney, also passed away. His memorial stone in the cemetery was paid for by friends and members of the Royal General Theatrical Fund, for which he was the treasurer for 25 years. The papers ran tributes from many of those who had worked with him and admired his talents. 
Among them was a personal recollection from the playwright Tom Taylor, who is best remembered now as the author of the play Our American Cousin, which Abraham Lincoln was watching when he was assassinated. Taylor had enormous admiration for Buxton as an actor, less so as a theatre manager. In a surprisingly frank piece of writing, Taylor talks about the actor's struggle to remember his lines in the last years of his life, even for parts that were once very, very familiar to him. But we can be grateful to Taylor for leaving this wonderful portrait of the ageing actor and giving us a clearer idea of the great man's talents. As actor, the English stage has seen few more genial and humorous mimics than Buxton. His art was of the English style, broad and laughter-making. He always seemed to attach more importance to the humorous than to any other quality of the part he acted. He did not overlook the general aspect of his parts, though. He clothed them all in a uniform garb of the Buxtonian humour, conveyed through the inimitable eye-twinkle and mouth-twist all knew so well. And the oily chuckle of a voice whose sound could produce a roar before the actor was seen. I said earlier that Buxton's fame is virtually forgotten now, but in fact his name lives on in the colourful superstitions of the theatre world. His ghost is said to haunt the Haymarket Theatre, and backstage staff claim to have seen him looking on and appreciating the odd performance, particularly if it is a comedy. None other than the actor Patrick Stewart has fuelled this legend, claiming in 2009 to have seen Buxton's Phantom looking on and enjoying a performance of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Buxton lived for comedy, couldn't help but inject humour into every part he played. When he wasn't performing it, he was producing or writing it. I leave you then with the words of this much-loved comedian. This passage is taken from his reminiscences published in the stage newspaper at the height of his fame. Not only does it demonstrate his skills as a humorist, but also paints a delightful picture of the chaotic daily life of the Buxtons in their Sydenham home. Some years ago I went in for pig rearing. Fact I found that I was being charged one and two a pound for bacon, so I thought I'd grow it on the premises. I wasn't exactly living in the country at the time and knew that there were regulations about pigsties and so on. But I thought I could dodge this by letting the beggar rove around on the lawn and sticking him when he was ripe. Awfully inquiring turn of mind, pigs have. Don't object to him in the nursery so much because he used to amuse young Sam. Though we nearly had to cut the brute's tail off once, the youngster got hold of it and wouldn't let go. Wanted to take the pig into his cot. <laughs> when it came to finding a pig under our own bed, thought it was a burglar, you know, we decided to build him a palatial residence at the side of the garden, where it had abutted onto the next door summer house. I dare say there was a bit of a smell. And besides, that pig used to cry like a child, only louder, at being debarred at the run of the house. But the neighbours need not have made such a fuss about it. However, the sanitary inspector came with a tape measure and I and the gardener got over into the pig's promenade and by holding the pig close into the fence in our direction and pressing his fat in a bit, we made out that the animal was all right as to distance by exactly half an inch. Man's affection 
London Epitaphs was brought to you by Tempest Productions. Thank you.